many of you gone through the process of naming a child, and I'm sure when you did that, you were very careful and thoughtful uh, as to your approach to that. When our daughter was born, um, we named her Melanie. We were actually, right after she was born, we were headed to Germany, and we were going to live there, um, as far as we knew, for many years. And so the reason we picked the name Melanie is because it was a name that worked both here in the United States and in Germany. In fact, in Germany at the time, the name Melanie was a very popular name, and it was spelled identically, the way we would spell it here and there, and you would pronounce it almost the same way. So that name worked out well, whether we were here in the United States or in Germany. Once in a while, a parent will name a child that will leave me scratching my head a little bit. Um, I always thought we could have some fun with our kids' names because our last name is Day, you know, you could name your daughter Wendy, Wendy Day, you know, or Holly, Holiday, maybe, or your son, Sonny, you know, something like that. My wife vetoed all those suggestions, by the way. Um, our son was born in 1992, and I wanted to name him Michael Jordan Day. That one got vetoed as well. I went to elementary school with a kid by the name of Rich Ritchie. I don't think I ever thought about it at the time, um, Rich Ritchie. I thought it had kind of a cool sound to it, but his parents actually pretty much named, gave him the same first name as his last name. And once in a while, when a lady gets married, she can marry a guy so that her first name and his last name make for some interesting combinations. So there was a lady named Eileen who married a guy with the last name of Wright. Yeah, Eileen Wright. Or maybe for you it's this way, I don't know. Um, or Lois. Lois married a man with the last name of Price. Lois Price. Perhaps the most unfortunate one I've heard of was when a lady by the name of Helen married a man with the last name of Back. Yeah, Helen Beck. I probably just keep my maiden name if that happened to me. Now, in Hebrew culture, and Hebrew culture is the setting in which the Old Testament, the first half of our Bible, was written. In Hebrew culture, names carried a ton of significance. They carried a ton of meaning. Many times, the names were given for the situation, for what was the current or present situation. Let me give you an example of what I mean. The name Isaac, you've heard that name in the Bible, right? There was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They're kind of the forefathers of the nation of Israel. So Abraham's son was Isaac. That name in Hebrew literally means he laughs. Yeah, he laughs. Here's why it means that. So Sarah, which, who was Abraham's wife, she was unable to have children. And one day God came to Abraham and said, look, you're still going to have a child by Sarah. And Abraham laughed. The reason is because God told him he would, Abraham would be 100 years old, Sarah would be 90 years old when that was going to happen. You can see why Abraham laughed at that. So sure enough, that did happen. And when Isaac was born, Sarah named him Isaac. He laughs because of what had happened, how Abraham had left of that. And I'm not making this up. I mean, you can read it. It's there in Genesis, like Genesis 17 or 21 or something like that. You're familiar with the name Moses in the Old Testament? 
Literally, the Hebrew for Moses is to lift out. Why? Well, if you know the story of Moses, maybe you can figure it out. Of course, when Moses was born, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had given the order that all the Hebrew babies were to be killed. So his parents put him in a container in a basket and put him in, on the river to hide him. The, the person who found him lifted him out of the water, so named him Moses. So again, Hebrew names had a ton of significance to them, and often their meaning was associated with the setting or context at the time. Now transplant yourself to 700 B.C., so 700 years before Jesus came to earth. Remember all that significance, all that meaning. And there's a prophet by the name of Isaiah who says these words. This is Isaiah 9, 6. For a child is born to us, a son is given, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In that culture, that would get your attention, wouldn't it? You would be saying, who is this child going to be? When, when is he going to come? What is the meaning behind this? And he's going to have four names, and one of those names is Mighty God. Those aren't names you normally give your kids, are they? Now, of course, we know because of when we live that those were all names, were all references to Jesus. They didn't know that 700 years before Jesus came. And we celebrate Christmas today because of those names. So what I want to do, I just want to take each of those four names and break them down, look at the richness of the meaning, significance of those names, and also how meaningful they are to us here many, many years later. So let's start with the first one. The first name that was given is Wonderful Counselor. Now, the two words translated into English, wonderful counselor, are actually Hebrew words that you would just pronounce pele ah And that first word, pele, yes, that sounds a lot like the former great Brazilian soccer player. That word pele or pele means wonderful, but actually it's a little stronger than the word wonderful. It can mean beyond understanding or too wonderful. For words. It's as if Isaiah wanted to describe the Messiah, the Savior, coming into the world, Jesus, and he didn't have the words to describe him. And the reason for that is because there really are no words to describe what kind of counselor Jesus is. Wonderful counselor. He's always loving. He's always speaking truth. He's always wise. He's always able to know what the real issue is. He always knows what is best. So how do we respond to that kind of counselor, a wonderful counselor? Let me give you three ways that we, even today, can respond to that. Here's the first one. Be honest. There are many accounts in the New Testament where people interacted with Jesus. And what I find interesting is that Jesus always had time for people who were honest, who were authentic. He didn't care much for pretending. And he didn't use people's honesty to condemn them, but rather to heal them. For example, he said, the truth 
will set you free. One example of that would be a Samaritan woman he met. It's recorded in John 4. We read the account in the Bible. Jesus came up to this well in a village where people would draw water. The lady was there. And when he first met her, they had a conversation. And she'd had a really rough life. And having just met her, he brought up her past. And he said to her, you've been married five times and you're living with a guy now. And her response, if I can just paraphrase, is this. Whoa, you know me really well. You know, no pretending on her part, no posturing, no getting defensive. So what was the outcome? Jesus offered her living water, and she found she would never thirst again. In other words, the longing of her heart was met, something that she so desperately wanted. Maybe what you need to do is come clean with Jesus. Say something like, you know, I'm hooked on something that's much bigger than I am, and I can't overcome this on my own. Or, Jesus, here's the truth. I've messed up big time, and I don't know where to turn. Or, the truth is, Jesus, I have trouble trusting you because I have some trust issues from the past, and I just don't want to get hurt again. So start by being honest. Here's a second way to respond to the wonderful counselor. It's this. Listen to, listen to him. We read these words of Jesus in John 10, 27. These words are written about his followers, and he recalls his followers' um, sheep in this verse. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So what does it mean to listen to Jesus? How do you do that? Well, Jesus can speak to you in many different ways. The main one is through the Bible, and that's why we tell you it's so important to have a habit of reading the Bible regularly. That's why we have the Ridge Reading Challenge this year. That's why we're going to offer it next year. Next year, we're going to take some of the chapters of the Old Testament and give you the opportunity to read one chapter a day from the Old Testament. God may speak to you through wise, godly friends. He may use a sermon. He may use a song. God speaks to us through our circumstances, and sometimes the challenging times of life are the ones that speak more loudly to us. And then there's a third way to respond to this counselor, and it's this. Do what he tells you to do. Have you ever had someone tell you to do something you really didn't want to do? I mean, you go to the doctor, and he or she says, I want you to lose some weight. Why? It's a whole lot more fun gaining the weight than it will be losing the weight. And he or she responds, because you'll be healthier, you'll live longer, you'll have better quality of life. You go to the dentist, and he or she says to you, I want you to brush your teeth more often and floss. And you say, floss, what's that? No, you don't say that to him. Don't say that. But you're thinking, oh, that's a hassle. Why do they tell you that? So you'll have teeth when you get older. Or your parents say, curfew is midnight. Why? You just don't want me to have any fun. You want to ruin my life. And they say, no, nothing good happens after midnight. In all three of these cases, people who are giving you advice care about you and about your well-being. Twenty years from now, if you follow their advice and do what they tell you to do, you'll look back and say, I'm glad I did what they told me to do. 
Jesus sometimes asks us to do things that at the time seem uncomfortable to us. Growth and change are almost always uncomfortable. But he sees our future. He has our best interests at heart. So do what he says. You'll be glad you did. Some of you know right now that God is nudging you to break off a relationship. Or maybe it's a person you're dating because they're not drawing you closer to God. In fact, they're pulling you the opposite way. But it feels safe and comfortable. Well, he's telling you that because he loves you. Some of you right now are in financial debt and you feel like you're going to be stressed the rest of your life because you've overextended yourself. You know that the Bible says that the borrower is servant to the lender. And so what God is saying to you is downsize your house. You know, sell the car you have and buy a more affordable one. And you're resisting. But he loves you. He wants what's best for you. Some of you are holding on to bitter feelings. Maybe something that's happened in the past towards your parents, a spouse, an ex-spouse, a friend, a co-worker. God wants you to forgive. Why? Well, he forgave you. He doesn't want you to be imprisoned to your own bitterness. Do what he says. Here are Jesus' words again in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Jesus is a counselor beyond words. So be honest, listen to what he says, and you'll be glad you did. Back to Isaiah 9:6. The next name will just stop you in your tracks. Remember that these names were given in 700 BC and they carried incredible significance and meaning. You read that the baby who is going to be born is going to be called the mighty God. How can that happen? And what is the significance of that? Can you imagine how it just blow your mind in 700 B.C. to, to hear those words, you know, about Jesus? We've got the rest of the story. We know that Mary was carrying the Son of God in her womb, conceived by the Holy Spirit. God became one of us. The mighty God became a man. One of the words that we often use to describe God as mighty is a prefix, and it's just the prefix omni, and omni means all or every. And in relationship to God, when we use that prefix about God, we say, we use terms like he is omniscient. That just means he knows everything. Or we say God is omnipresent, meaning that he is everywhere. Or we say that God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. Think about the implications of these characteristics for your life. All-knowing, everywhere, all-powerful. So look at it this way. Our mighty God is at work in our lives in at least three ways. Here's the first one. God is working in me. He is working to change you, to make you more like Jesus, more loving, more caring, to give you more joy, left being less self-centered and more self-controlled. This is the promise from our mighty God. This is Philippians 2.13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases Him. Next, God is working 
for me. Have you ever felt fearful, weak, insecure, inadequate? Me too, yeah. Have your circumstances ever discouraged or disheartened you? Know this, God is in the middle of all that working for you. Here's what I would say is one of the most amazing promises of the Bible. We actually sing this phrase in some of our songs. It's Romans 8.31, and it says, If God is for us, who can ever be against us? And then finally, God is working through me. Um, I've shared this with some of our staff several times, but perhaps one of the best plays of God's power in my life that I can remember has been when I've been at some of my weakest points. There have been several times, you know, in the last 30 years or so when I would get up to speak and I didn't feel like speaking. Sometimes it was because I was just sick. Um, sometimes it was because I didn't feel emotionally up to it, maybe due to some really tough circumstance at the time. So often my prayer to God before I would speak in those situations was just a really honest, God, just get me through this morning. And guess what? In all, almost inevitably, in every one of those situations, someone would come up and say something like, thanks, I really needed to hear that this morning. That's happened too often for it to be a coincidence. It was all God, zero, Jerry. That's why it was impacting. So here's God's promise to us. This is 2 Corinthians 12 9 and it says my grace is all you need my power works best in weakness I have a friend who decided to read through the entire Bible this year and we would text back and forth about it how it was going for him um, which was a lot of fun he actually finished reading through the Bible in nine months which I just think is amazing but I remember the specific day I got a text from him, he was reading 2 Corinthians 12.9, the verse you see up here on the screens right now. Here's what his text said to me. My grace is all you need, oh baby. That's one of my all-time favorite texts. We often think that because we have a mighty God, he is there to change our circumstances to remove the bad and just make life more comfortable for us. However, the power of God is often best displayed when He takes our struggles and problems and uses them to help us grow and change. See, God is working for us. He's working in us. He's working through us. We have a mighty God. The next name, the third name in Isaiah 9-6 is just as intriguing because it's the name, the Everlasting Father. And literally in Hebrew, this phrase can be translated, Father of Eternity. He's like a loving dad who will always be there. Some of you have grown up with a father who hasn't always been there. Jesus will always be there. Some of you have lost a parent. And especially if you were close there were many times after that where you were thinking, you know, man, I really miss mom, or I wish my dad were here. I just want to be able to talk to him. I just wish I could ask my dad his advice. I could give you study after study, statistic after statistic, on the impact that a father has on children. 
You know, Parenting Magazine says that toddlers with involved fathers have higher IQs by age three. Children with involved fathers were 43% more likely to make A's in school. According to the Children's Bureau, father engagement reduces the frequency of behavioral problems in boys. Now, if you're a single mom and you're thinking, what do I do? You can find some intentional ways to get your child or your children um, around positive role models. It can make a huge difference. We try to provide that even through our youth programs here at the church. But if you're feeling like you missed out, you didn't. Jesus can be like that father, and he's an everlasting father, always there. Here's the question, though. Can I trust him? Or maybe a better question would be, will I trust him? This fall, I did what's called a half Ironman. It's where you swim, bike, and run, and you swim 1.2 miles, and you bike 56 miles, and then you run 13.1 miles, and you do that all at one time. And I had done triathlons before, but I'd never done one of that distance before. So as the time drew near, I began to get a little nervous, Um, and it stressed me out more than any other event I had ever done because it was the biggest one I'd done. I was thinking, can I do this or not? And I talked to a couple guys who have done these things many times in the past, and they knew I had trained for it. I had trained um, six days a week for six to eight months before doing this. And that included not only swimming, biking, and running. I would do that, but I would do strength training as well. And when I would express my anxiety to them, they kept saying the same thing to me over and over again. They said, Jerry, trust your training. You've been training for eight months. Trust your training. I bet I heard them say that a half a dozen times. Now, that's hard to do if you've never experienced it, right? But you know what? I found out it was true. And some of you struggle to trust in an everlasting father because you've never experienced that with an earthly father. But once you experience God as your father, what you find is you can trust him. Jesus is like an everlasting father. He's always there. Listen to these words. These words come right from Isaiah, the same book we're looking at about the Christmas message this morning. This is Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. It says, You will keep me in perfect peace, all who trust. You will keep in perfect peace, all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord is the eternal rock. Well, there's one last name that's given to the Messiah 700 years before he came, and it's this. The Prince of Peace. Now, when we think of the Christmas message, one of the words that perhaps comes to mind is the word peace. Prince of Peace. You know, we've heard the phrase, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. I think many times we envision the manger scene at Bethlehem as being so peaceful. But I'm not sure the original setting for the birth of Jesus was all that peaceful. For example... When the angel says to Mary, you're going to become pregnant because God is going to cause it to happen, how is she going to explain that one? And when the angel says to Joseph, go ahead and marry her even though she's pregnant because she's still a virgin, how is he going to explain that one? That will cause some inner turmoil. 
and they lived under Roman oppression at the time. Herod killed all the baby boys two years and under in and around Bethlehem. That's not, what I'm describing is not a peaceful setting, is it? And Christmas time isn't all that peaceful for many of you and what's taking place around you. I hear some of you say it's the busiest time of year for you, so it causes you stress, not peace. Or some of you going into this time of year are lonely because you're missing someone, and the holidays just accentuate that. Health, health issues can magnify that. Some of you are already financially stressed, then you're going to overextend yourself again during the holidays. We are around people all the time who just don't have peace. And you may be one of them. So where is the peace? Perhaps the peace this is referring to in what we've read is a different kind of peace. It's a peace not from what's happening around us. It's a peace that can be within us. So how does the Prince of Peace give us peace? Let me give you three ways. The first one is this. There's peace with God. We have peace with God. Peace with God is about our relationship with Him. Listen to what Romans 5.1 in the Bible says. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Our sin keeps us from God. That breaks our relationship with God because God is holy. He's without sin. And sin separates us from God in this life and it can separate us from God for eternity when we die. But we can have peace in our relationship with God. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died, to take our sins on himself on the cross to be our substitute so we can be made right with God. Notice that what we read from Romans doesn't say that we're made right by our good works or by our religious efforts. It comes through faith, trusting in what Jesus has already done for us. Your sins can be forgiven. You can have a close relationship with Jesus in this life, and you can have the promise that you'll spend eternal life with him in heaven. That gives you peace even when the world around you is not at peace. Here's a second kind of peace, and it's peace of God. Knowing that you have Jesus to walk with you through this life when you become his follower, when you invite him into your life, He's there to guide you, and you know that no matter what the circumstances are, he can give you peace. Listen to this incredible promise to, of Jesus again. His words, back to John, John 14, 27. He said, I'm leaving you a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give you is a gift the world cannot give, so don't be troubled or afraid. Let me explain it to you this way. Um, we moved into the house that we now live in about seven years ago, and Right before we moved in, I did some renovations to the upstairs. It was essentially a large loft area, and we converted into two bedrooms and a large big walk-in closet. And I'm not the greatest handyman in the world, but I enjoyed doing that kind of work. So I put up the walls, hung the doors, and so on. But when it came to the electrical work and the wiring, I phoned a friend. This friend is a licensed electrician. Why? Because I knew I was out of my league you know, if I don't get a door hung correctly, well, then it just doesn't close well. But if I mess up the wiring, I could burn the house down. 
So I found peace in having my friend help me. And that's what Jesus wants to do for you as you walk through this life. And then there's a third kind of peace. There's peace with God. There's peace of God. There's also peace from God. Jesus basically says, let me do the worrying for you. That's why I love this promise, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. You have someone to walk through this life with you, regardless of your circumstances. And if you think about it, though, too, this name, the Prince of Peace, probably has a future promise in it. Someday when Jesus returns, there will be peace for his followers forever. Some of you right now feel no peace because you're trying to do it on your own. But the peace isn't to try, it's to trust. You have to trust in your right standing with God, like Romans 5, 1 tells us. When you do that, that makes you a child of God. That makes you part of his family. And the Bible promises that you'll never be separated from God's love. But as a follower of Jesus, he's always there for you. He's always there to walk with you through this life. You just have to decide, do I want to keep worrying on my own and letting my circumstances cause turmoil in my life? Or do I want to rely on Jesus to guide me through this life?